sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello, and welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the books surrounding you are those used to research our show, and the individual to my right here, along with managing domestic duties, serves as a reader for any passages that will be uh, directly quoted from these sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. I should probably start by addressing the many messages I received regarding our Hexcat story and the uh, souvenir Hexcat dolls that were being sold back in the day. At least a dozen people got in touch asking if there were pictures of these and expressing the desire to own one. Yes, people were asking me too. Well, I do have some feelers out on that and it's possible we may have turned one up. We need to do uh, some verification first, but I'll keep you all posted on that. That is exciting, but not as exciting as our other news. Yes, a joint venture of sorts between uh, Mrs. Carswell and myself. While I was doing some spring cleaning, moving stuff off a cluttered shelf, I found this miniature carousel, or Ferris wheel, actually. It was so buried beneath things, I'd forgotten I had it. It's from a flea circus. Yes, I uh, helped a friend with some translations and uh, image acquisition for a book about the Victorian flea circus, and he gave it to me. It's from Germany, uh, probably 1860s, maybe 70s. Well, I recognized what it was right away because my uncle had one like it, but a little bigger. And not for fleas, but bees. He had a bee circus. Yes, in the 1960s. And not just the circus, but also a psychic bees mind-reading show. Uncle Ebert's Psychic Bees. I knew a fair amount about flea circuses after working on the book, so I... I find it all very intriguing. It is. I told Mrs. Carswell that I'd be willing to put a bit of money into the venture if she'd be interested in training her bees to uh, start something like that. Oh, and of course I am. I even know which bees would be good candidates. A few I have a special rapport with. They'd practically train themselves. And as it turns out, Ebert's gear, all his bee circus uh, equipment and props still exist. Even little costumes. They're darling. I just have to get it sent out. I have to ask Mother if she could have it shipped, which, well, I'm sure she will. I think so. I know she'd like to be rid of it all. She's always talking about getting rid of it. So, once we get that, we're in business. Well, yes, assuming... That's assuming Mother doesn't have a problem with the shipping or with me starting into all this. I would just have to call her. Now you're hesitant? Oh, no, no. I I think she'll ship it out. She just, well, there was some sort of bad blood, I guess, or something. And I guess you'd say she wasn't crazy about him or the circus, or the way he worked with bees. Well, I know you were excited. I was. And I think there's an audience for this sort of thing again. Flea circuses have actually made a bit of a comeback. I can talk to her myself. Oh, no, no. I'll talk to her. I just have to be careful. I guess there was an incident with the circus. 
He used to perform at schools and, you know, little kids, they don't know how to act around bees. All sorts of erratic, sudden movements and noises. He'd try to watch out for that, but sometimes... What's that mean? Weren't the bees in class cases? Well, he was careful, but he was always trying new things, new methods. So someone got stung? A a kid got stung? Yes, a kid. A a number of kids. Swarms are unpredictable. And and then there's allergies. Uh, Well, we'll get a few EpiPens. There was also a fire. Well, that that won't happen with us. Uh, Anyway, uh, we'll keep everyone out there posted on this. uh, But right now, I think it's uh, time to start our show. Episode 70... Hex Murders and Madness in Old Pennsylvania. I am your host, Al Ridenour, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. But Insigil only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive monthly rewards, including short bonus episodes. I'll have more on the world of our Patreon supporters at the end of our show. She had a black cat. She'd send across the hill to her other sister. She dried pins in that chariot. She took the spell off whenever, whenever she wanted to bewitch someone. She and they made sick. He believed in that stuff. At that time, he was about a hundred years old. Which doctor came there? My name was Ben Because I had heard about Aunt Junie's witchcraft. very dim. This night, they didn't I had a witch sitting on a little old porch on the side of their house. The witch. Had a child without his bewitched. He had one lived down the hill. With a bonnet on her head. And her eyes closed. And her milk was all blood. And she was supposed to be a witch. A witch. The voices in the montage come from an interesting documentary I'll link in the notes called Signs, Cures, and Witchery, German Appalachian Folklore. It was produced as a companion to an excellent book of the same name by Gerald Milnes. Our last episode provided some background on the type of magic we'll be discussing, either Braucherei or Hexerei, good or bad magic, practiced by German immigrants in Pennsylvania uh, who are called Braukers or powwow doctors. The form of magic is also sometimes called powwow. It's nothing to do with Native American uh, magic, though. One strategy adopted by the Braucher to fend off criticism was to refuse payment for services. Uh, This was regarded as good practice by those who saw their skills as a gift from God to be freely shared. This would be at least with small-time brauchers who were closely tied to their communities. But uh, by the turn of the century, you'd find plenty of brauchers setting up cash-based businesses in larger towns, and though this was in some places illegal, they would usually only come to the attention of authorities when there were complaints. Already in November 1891, 
An article from the Pittsburgh Dispatch compares the beliefs of inhabitants of the hills of Earl and Douglas townships to those of the Salem colony fanatics of the 17th century and describes sad cases such as Mrs. Mary Wenzel, who was recently a judge, a lunatic, by the Burke's court, is another victim of this witchcraft hallucination. Fifteen years ago, she was informed that certain neighbors of hers were witches who practiced the black art in secret, and the fancy so preyed upon her mind that she became deranged. Now, whenever she sees any person not belonging to her immediate family enter, or even approach her house, she runs to her room, locks herself in, and hides in a closet to escape her supposed enemy. And uh, also mentions Mrs. Elizabeth Weend, whose failing health caused her to seek out witch doctors. One after another until eventually her husband took her to a new witch doctor and received sundry potions from him shortly afterwards maddened by the nameless drugs mrs weed attempted to drown herself in the scruple but was rescued next day she tried to jump out of a tall window but was prevented by her niece finally september the 10th she got possession of two razors and with them horribly slashed her throat and abdomen. She does survive, however, and the shock cures her of her delusions. And then in 1894, the Public Weekly Opinion of Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, describes a George Keller whose fear of witches results in odd behavior. He put wire cloth over the tops of his chimneys, changed some of his doors so they would open out instead of in, and began to enter the house backward. He dug a great pit in his yard where he burned all the bewitched articles of his household and kitchen. Being so busily engaged in this wholesale sacrifice that he neglected to put in his crops or in any way make provisions for the support of his family. When a cow dies, because of witches, naturally, he dragged the carcass into the pit and chopping up the withered shade tree together with parts of the house and fence, he piled all in one great heap above the pit. To this, he applied the torch and assured his family that when the fire began to consume the cow, the person who was guilty of witchcraft would be compelled to come upon the scene. Somehow, this fails to draw the witches, but the neighbors come running, thinking the house is on fire. When Keller eventually begins finding and destroying objects on their property, in which the witches might hide, there are further unintended consequences. Namely, The poor fellow is now in jail at Jonesboro. An even more dire situation appears in a March 1922 edition of the York Daily Record. It concerns a woman, Sally Heegey, whose husband, Irwin, and her brother, William Bevenor, who's overnighting with the couple, in preparation for taking his sister the next day to an asylum in Baltimore, as she's been recently deemed by a court to be mentally unbalanced. It is also reported that the woman was jealous of her husband. The article describes a murder occurring that night. The record recounts Sally Heegey's testimony. According to her story, 
She got out of bed about three o'clock yesterday, under a spell, went downstairs, secured an axe, and, with the blade, pried off the lid of a tool chest in which her husband had locked two revolvers. She took out one of the guns, returned to the upper floor, and into her husband's room. Then she lay on the bed alongside her husband, with the revolver hidden in her pocket. After she had been lying there for a while, she claims, the mysterious force compelled her to shoot. The bullet entered Hiji's right breast. Hearing the gunshot, the brother runs to the bedroom. He found Mrs. Hiji clutching the revolver, and her husband holding her by the wrist and bleeding from the mouth. Bivanor snatched the gun from his sister's hand as Hiji, choking with blood and dying from the wound inflicted by the bullet, fell to the floor. The woman, in a frenzy, ran screaming to another part of the house while Bivanor tried to aid his brother-in-law. The man died, however, within five minutes after the shot was fired. After rushing to a nearby farmhouse to call for help, the brother returns. By this time, the woman had worked herself into a fury. Bivanor and the others, who by then had arrived at the farmhouse, strapped her to an ironing board. And as she's transported to the county jail, she became violent. Four men and two women were required to move her from the automobile to the cell. The officers and attendants sustained bruises and scratches in this work. The mysterious force Sally Hiji blamed for the murder seems to have been part of a host of demons that beset her and from which she sought relief from a well-known broker from York known as Professor Andrew C. Lenhart. He had provided her with... A paper which was placed over the door to keep the spirits away. This paper was found yesterday between a curtain and paper which covered the transom of a door leading into the yard. The paper bore the words... Trotterhead, Erwin Hiji, forbid thee my house and premises. I forbid thee my horse and cow stable. Forbid my bedstead, and thou mayest not breathe upon me. Breathe into some other house, until thou hast ascended every hill, until thou hast counted every fence post, until thou hast crossed every water, and thus dear day may come into my house. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. This centuries-old German prayer, actually discussed in our Lullabies and Nightmares episode, attempts to divert the attack of an evil being with lists of endless tasks comparable to the uh, scattering of millet seeds or grains of salt that's elsewhere used to uh, distract witches or vampires obliged to count them before they can attack. The uh, prayer appears in The Long Lost Friend, where it's addressed to Trotterhead, a particular demon or form taken by a witch only in Dutch Pennsylvania. In comparison to a nearly identical Austrian prayer to keep away the night hag suggests that the Trotterhead is a form of that entity. Interestingly, the charm that's quoted pairs the husband's name with Trotterhead, suggesting that perhaps Professor Lenhart and Mrs. Hiji had come to the belief that a trotter head was taking on the form of Erwin Hiji attempting to enter the bedroom, as uh, 
couple had uh, lately ceased sleeping together, and Mrs. Hiji had actually been staying with her sister in a nearby town. It was Thanksgiving Day when Oscar Glattfelter heard the distressing braying of a mule on the farm of a neighbor down in Raymeyer's Hollow, which is somewhere between Winterstown and Shrewsbury in York County. From the November 30th edition of the Hanover Evening Sun, Gladfelter went to the stable. He discovered that the mule had not been fed. Then Gladfelter went to the back door of the kitchen of the two-story frame house. It was closed but unlocked. Gladfelter opened the door and entered the room. The sight that met his gaze was startling. Lying on the floor face down, with the head resting on a block of kindling wood, was the body of Nelson Raymire. There was a heavy piece of rope around the neck. The arms were pinioned behind the back and held there with a strong piece of rope tied around the arms close to the shoulders. The legs were crossed and the feet tied together with a lighter rope. The legs were bent so that they were forced toward the back of the man's body. Parts of a broken chair were scattered about the floor. At the left knee, a hole about one and one-half feet in diameter was burned in the floor. The knee had slipped into the opening. Most of the man's clothing was burned off. The body of the man was charred almost black from the flames. His left knee was burned to the bone. At the side of the body, a coal lamp was found. There was still a bit of kerosene in the bowl, but the wick had been pulled far out and had burned away. As you would have gathered, this murder was tied to Brauchorei, and not in some tenuous way, either. The attention that this witchcraft story drew from the press outside Pennsylvania far exceeded the considerable buzz generated by the hex cat in our last episode. So... We'll begin with a central figure in this story, a third-generation Braucher or powwower named John Blymeyer. While a young man in his 20s, Blymeyer gathered a small clientele seeking his supernatural services, but hardly thrived in the craft, and by his 30s, he'd come to believe that he was under a spell cast by an unknown hex. Hoping to discover the identity of the witch who laid the spell on him, a requirement for defeating any curse, one evening, Blymeyer overheard an owl hoot seven times. And at once, he thought of the owl kept by his grandfather, a powerful broker who, as legend has it, had taught the bird to speak. The seven hoots he counted, Blymeyer was convinced, were an omen revealing the witch's identity. His grandfather, a seventh son of a seventh son, had cursed him from his grave. Blymeyer moved away from his home in the graveyard containing his grandfather's bones, married a woman named Lily, and had two children. But when both died in infancy, he regarded this as a sign that he had been wrong about his grandfather and the identity of the witch. He became obsessed with understanding and lifting the curse, seeking help from a number of fellow powwowers and eventually ending up in consultation with Professor Andrew Lenhart, whom we encountered in our earlier story. Lenhart revealed to Blymeyer that the witch is someone very close to him. 
increasing the young man's obsession and paranoia a thousandfold. His new wife suffered greatly as a result, and the couple repeatedly separated, and during one such separation in 1923, Blymeyer was arrested for entering Lily's place of employment, brandishing a gun. With the encouragement of her family, Lily eventually had Blymeyer committed to a psychiatric hospital in Harrisburg, where he was diagnosed with psychoneurosis, neurasthenic type, relating to the witchcraft delusion. But only 48 days later, Blymeyer had escaped from the hospital, simply walking off the grounds when patients were released outside. Hitchhiking back to his home in Shrewsbury, he returned to his old life as a part-time Braucher and employee at a cigar factory. There, the 32-year-old Blymeyer befriended an impressionable teen whom he eventually involved in his delusions of Hexerai. John Curry came from a troubled home where he was beaten by his stepfather and consequently began spending more time outside the home on the streets where he became known to police. Fascinated by Blymeyer's reputation as a magician, he became a sort of magical apprentice to the man. A second key player in our story, a new acquaintance of Blymeyer's, was Milton Hess, who had worked on his family farm until his chickens were stolen and crops had begun to fail. When he met Blymeyer, the Hesses had sold off most of the farm and Milton was attempting to make ends meet as a truck driver, but found himself hampered by mysterious pains and anxieties that deprived him of sleep and troubles in his marriage. Hess was a believer in Braucherei, and while he couldn't afford a big city broker, he was pleased to hear of Blymeyer's services and more affordable rates. Blymeyer provided Hess with a protective charm and suggested that Hess's sister-in-law, with whom he'd had a property dispute, may have hired a witch to curse him, but he could do little more until he knew the identity of that particular black magician. All the while, Blymeyer was still pondering the identity of the witch who had woven the spell cursing him so many years ago. Eventually, he sought help from a particularly respected Braucherin living along the Susquehanna in the town of Marietta, Nellie Knoll, sometimes called the River Witch of Marietta. Upon his first visit, Knoll confirmed that Blymeyer was indeed suffering under a curse and generally convinced him of her abilities, and so he returned for a second visit, during which he revealed that the hex in question was a man. On a third visit, he learned that the witch in question was very old, on a fourth that he lived alone in the country, and on the fifth that it was someone Blymeyer had known since childhood. On the sixth visit, Nellie Knoll revealed the actual identity of the man in a very curious way involving the metamorphosis of the face of George Washington, it seems. Testimony given on this recounted in a story from the New York Daily News. Blymeyer said the woman put a dollar bill in his hand, said some words, and then told him to look down at his hand. There in my hand I could see Nelson Raymire, he said. <laughs> this came as a great shock. Raymire was not only a distant relative and neighbor, he was a fellow broker, and Blymire's father and grandfather had traded magical services with him. When young John was tormented by a seemingly incurable fever at the age of five, it was to Nelson Raymire that he'd been entrusted for treatment, which was said to have been quite successful. 
But the more Blymeyer pondered the matter, the more sense it made that this sense of trust would, for so many years, perfectly cloak any sort of black magic Raymeyer would choose to pursue. Not only did Blymeyer blame his neighbor for the curse laid upon him, but soon he had convinced Curry and Hess that their troubles were also Raymeyer's work. Some sources say Nellie Knoll suggested a specific plan of attack, but Blymeyer himself could have certainly conceived of it as it fits a general pattern. To work a counterspell, something personal would be needed from the witch, a lock of hair from Raymeyer in this case. And no magician could be defeated as long as he was protected by his magic book, namely the long-lost friend, which in its preamble states, Whoever carries this book with him is safe from all his enemies, visible or invisible. And whoever has this book with him cannot die, nor be drowned in any water, nor burn up in any fire, nor can unjust sentence be passed upon him. So help me. On November 26, Blymeyer convinced Curry and Hess that in order to undo the hexes under which they all suffered, the three should visit Raymeyer to obtain the book and a lock of his hair. When they arrive at the farmhouse, Raymeyer welcomes them inside, but while they make small talk about Brothlerai, Blymeyer sizes up his host, realizing that he's much bigger and tougher looking than he'd remembered, and begins to doubt whatever plans he'd originally made. It grows late, and the kindly old host offers his guests a place to sleep, and though they hope to at least locate and steal the magic book during the night, that proves unsuccessful. So they leave the next morning with intentions of coming back better prepared. This involves purchasing some rope to restrain Raymire, who is unlikely to be happy to have a lock of hair removed, and once this is done, they return on November 28th. We'll continue the story with court testimony from Wilbert Hess, quoted in the Harrisburg Evening News. They arrive at Raymire's farm and... Blymire rapped on the door. Nobody answered. Blymire called Raymire by name. Raymire lifted the window on the second floor and answered the call of Blymire. Blymire said to Raymire, I want to see you, that he, Blymire, lost one of his books. Raymire came downstairs and opened the door. Blymire asked Raymire whether he saw his book. Raymire said he saw no book. Raymire said the book may be in the paper rack. Blymire said he could not see where he lost the book. Blymire pulled away the couch and looked back of it for the book. Blymire pushed the couch. Raymire was standing at the table, and then Blymire grabbed him around the body and made motions for me to grab Raymire. I grabbed Raymire, and Curry grabbed him too, and then the three of us took hold of Raymire and threw him to the floor. There is a struggle during which Blymire and Hess hit Raymire with logs he brought in for the fire, and Blymire brings a chair over his head. Hess wants Blymire to just cut the hair, but it sounds as if at some point, perhaps during the struggle, Perhaps long before, Blymeyer had settled on a more direct, less magical way to defeat Raymire and this curse. Blymeyer lifted Raymire's head and told us to put the rope under Raymire's neck, and Curry put the rope under. And then Blymeyer said, choke him. And Curry pulled the rope so tight that I could not hear Raymire breathe anymore. 
With their victim dead, they abandon the idea of hunting for the book, helping themselves instead to a few dollars they find in some drawers. Then Blymeyer said we better light the house on fire so they don't get suspicious of us. Curry went to work and took the oil lamp and poured the oil over Raymire. Blymeyer lit Raymire's clothes and then we started out. After the discovery of the body, police learned from a neighbor that Blymeyer and Curry had earlier visited a nearby farm looking for Raymire, and Curry, being already familiar to the police, is quickly picked up and quickly confesses. With the three suspects rounded up, the trial is set for early January. The prosecution was eager to keep witchcraft out of the trial, hoping to emphasize robbery as a mode of the uh, $2.80, probably taken more as an afterthought. It's not clear if they did this more to avoid an insanity defense on behalf of the accused, or whether to avoid stigmatizing their community as backwards, or simply avoid the circus of publicity a witchcraft trial would generate. But witchcraft could not be avoided. Early in the trial, Hess was testifying and stopped to ask his attorney if he should use the actual word Blymeyer had used for Raymeyer, and that word being witch, of course. He's given the go-ahead. The Daily News reports, As soon as Hess uttered these words, the defense asked for a postponement of cross-examination until the next morning. His request was granted. The crowd filed out of the courtroom, whispering, shaking their heads. All three defendants were found guilty. Curry's life sentence was commuted in 20 years thanks to his young age during the crime. Hess, having played a minor role, was paroled in 10, and Blymeyer, who was sent to Philadelphia's imposing Eastern State Penitentiary, was eventually paroled after 24 years, presumably never again to dabble in Brocherei. Like our more recent satanic panic, after the Raymeyer case, the press became obsessed with investigating any possible link to Brauchereye in any Pennsylvania crime they reported on. Only a few months after the trial, the body of a 21-year-old woman, Verna Delp, was discovered in a forest near Allentown. The coroner detected poison in her system, but that generated less interest than the charm she carried in her pockets. When they were traced to the Braucher Charles T. Bells, he was detained on murder charges, on the suspicion that the poisons ingested were perhaps something concocted by Bells, either intentionally or unintentionally poisonous. It was a ridiculous stretch, especially so as the unmarried and likely suicidal Delp was found by the coroner to be pregnant with a presumably unwanted baby. Common sense prevailed and charges against Bells were dropped. But again in 1930, a Mrs. Harry MacDonald was found burned to death in her home, and according to the Reading Times, her brother testified that for some time he had thought she was mentally deranged as a result of the Hexerai treatments. And it was speculated that a body salve concocted by the Braucher had been flammable and responsible for the fire, but this was never actually substantiated. Dutch country magic was even suspected in urban Philadelphia. In 1932, the body of a church accountant, Norman Bechtel, was discovered in a mutilated state, which, according to the Lancaster New Era, some regarded as hex marks. It goes on to describe how small crescents had been cut on each side of his forehead, and a horizontal cut about one inch long was under each crescent. Another cut 
starting just below the hairline, ran straight down to the bridge of the nose, and two others ran diagonally upward from each eyebrow. The coroner also found that... His clothing then had been opened, and the weapon plunged seven or more times in a small circle around the heart. I don't know how the patterning of the wounds was ever explained, but five years later the perpetrator confessed to the killing, which had something to do with a failed attempt to blackmail Bechtel. The connection to Hexerai probably was only made because the victim came from the town of Boyerton in Pennsylvania's Dutch country and was a Mennonite, one of Pennsylvania's plain people whose old-fashioned dress, like that of the Amish, could have marked him as a Dutchman and opened the floodgates of witchcraft suspicions. While the press was certainly over-eager for sensationalist copy, belief in the magic of brauchers and hexes had by no means vanished by the 1930s. In fact, only six years after the Raymeyer case, in 1934, there was another murder of an alleged witch, this time around the coal mining town of Shenandoah, about 20 miles north of Pottsville, a center of um, hexcat activity in our last show. In fact, this story includes a sort of hex cat. Nearby Shenandoah, on a secluded farm in Ringtown Valley, lived Susan Mummy, an old woman locals knew as Old Seuss or Old Susie, or sometimes the Witch of Ringtown Valley, thanks in part to her work as a Braukerin or healer. Many also feared falling under a curse she might lay on them, or at least a lawsuit, as she was endlessly engaged in disputes with neighbors. And I also find a 1923 article in which she was arrested for moonshining. An incident that seems to have helped establish a reputation for supernatural abilities came decades before our story takes place in 1910, and uh, it's recounted in a story in the Philadelphia Inquirer from March of 1934. One day, Susie Mummy's husband was leaving their home, and she said, you'll never come back alive. And that very day, so oldsters recall, Henry Mummy was caught in the Ferndale powder explosion, and he didn't come back alive. In 1927, a teenager working on the neighboring farm by the name of Albert Shinsky, sometimes erroneously given as Yashinsky, seems to have crossed old Susie. The circumstances were variously described in the press, either something about a shortcut over her lamb that involved trespassing or damage to a fence. Seven years later, in the Philadelphia Inquirer, the young man, Shinsky, recalled the moment in which Mummy declared, I'll get you! And how? She stared at him, and he felt his flesh creep, and his body trembled. He felt a cold hand pass over his shoulders. She turned and walked away. But in the words of Albert, she had already gotten him. Thus began years of torment that led to Shinsky eventually firing a bullet through the heart of Mummy on the 17th of March, 1934. Utterly convinced that he had been under the power of a witch and feeling both relieved and justified in his actions, he eagerly recounted the supernatural tribulations he had endured to the press. The very day Mummy had threatened him, Shinsky told the Philadelphia Inquirer, the witch began to persecute him in his sleep. He had been asleep hardly an hour 
when he was awakened by a visitation that was to be his perpetual visitor once or twice every month for years to come. That visitor was an enormous giant cat with two green eyes that shone like railroad signals. In some way, the face of the cat seemed to be illuminated, and that face was not a cat's face, but the human countenance of Mrs. Mummy attached to a feline body. The cat was perched upon Albert's windowsill, but it did not stay there. It jumped to the floor and crawled to his bed, up the side of the bed, under the covers next to his own body. The boy, who was just 17 at the time of this first visit, could not cry out. His tongue, his mouth, his whole body was paralyzed. The cat clawed at his side until the pain was almost unendurable. But of course, in the morning, no wounds could be found. On the next visit, the cat was accompanied by a visitor. There, at the foot of the bed, in a halo of white light, was a black figure and the awful staring face of Mrs. Mummy. Mrs. Mummy appeared a few more times, initially as a silent, staring figure, but later more verbal, threatening to take his life. Her apparition, however, does not seem to have visited with the same regularity as the cat, a creature which didn't just visit Shinsky as he lay in bed. He explained that whenever he saw some sharp object, he could not take his eyes from it, and then it developed into a huge black cat with flaming eyes which snarled and spat at him. A reporter from the Pottsville Republican visiting Chensky's jail cell on March 22nd described the inmate actually experiencing one of these feline apparitions during their interview. Several times during the examination, he suddenly stopped talking, looking straight ahead fixedly at the wall. Then his face became clouded with the most grotesque grimaces, as though of fear and pain. He appeared to be in the throes of an epileptic fit. In about eight minutes, he came out of the spell and was weak, but apparently normal otherwise. Shinsky also reported feeling enormously drained and disoriented by the encounters, and often extremely cold, so much so that he would have to run around his bedroom to warm up. At other times, the cat swelled to fill the room, almost suffocating him. Shinsky sought relief through his Catholic faith, through counseling with his spiritual advisor and pilgrimages to shrines throughout the eastern states, but found nothing of help there. He also consulted a number of powwows, seven by one story, twelve by another, and found some help, including the suggestion that he call out the persons of the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, to keep the cat at bay, which appeared to work to some extent. But one unnamed powwower, he claimed, gave him the advice that provided his ultimate relief. He told him, according to a story in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, I'd never be right till old Susie was killed by a magic bullet. And so he borrowed a shotgun, made for it what's called a pumpkin ball, that is a heavy homemade slug that can be fired in place of the shotgun's usual buckshot, something used for taking down heavier prey, or witches. And since he was casting the lead himself, it was possibly done under ritual conditions, so this wasn't explicitly mentioned. 
And thus prepared on the night of March 17th, he drove to Mummy's isolated farmhouse. For half an hour, he paced to and fro around the front of the Mummy house, trying to rouse enough courage to shoot and also trying to conquer the spirit inside him that tried to plea for Mummy's life. The house was dimly lit by a single oil lantern, presenting yet another problem. But at a particular moment, Susan Mummy stepped forward, finally fully visible, and Shinsky fired a single shot through the window, which tore a two-inch hole directly through her heart and lodged itself in the woodwork. She instantly fell dead. From the Philadelphia Inquirer. He says that it was less than 10 minutes after he had fired that shot that he felt the evil spirit which she had filled him pass right out through his spine. Mummy had many enemies, but Shinsky had been quite public regarding his troubles with the old woman, and a confession was not hard to extract from the shooter who regarded his actions as mere self-defense. It took the jury exactly eight minutes to return a verdict of guilty. The judge allowed that his sentence should not be served in prison, but a state psychiatric hospital, from which, after 42 years, in 1975, Shinsky eventually emerged a free man, dissuaded of his belief in witches. I haven't been able to sprinkle the show with the sorts of audio clips from horror films and the like as I usually do, but as we are about to end the show, I wanted to remedy that. Touched by the gift. I believe I can teach you more than reading and writing. With the sort of rich subject matter we've been discussing, you'd think there'd be a lot of films of this nature, but in fact there seems to be only one. Apprentice to Murder, a true supernatural thriller. This rather obscure 1987 film purports to be based on the Raymeyer case, though it only conforms in the loosest possible way. Donald Sutherland stars in it, playing a sort of John Blymeyer, renamed Reese, and a fair bit more urbane and well-read than the cigar factory worker was known to be. The Raymeyer character may be the devil himself, and backcountry Pennsylvania may or may not be Norway, or actually is. That's actually where the film was shot, thanks to some odd international production deal. If you want something a bit more factual, there's an excellent 2015 documentary on the case called Hex Hollow, which I'll link in the notes. John Blymeyer was born with a cloud over his head. It was just one unfortunate event after another with him. He became obsessed with the notion that he was under a curse. Anyway, one last related media curiosity. The Raymeyer story appears to have burned like acid into certain creative minds in York County, namely an artist calling himself Lenny Lionstar of Lenny Lionstar and the Hillbillies of the Universe. I find a 2016 song by them called Raymeyer's Spells, Return of Nellie Knoll, River Witch. Well, that was 2016, but by 2019, the acid seems to have burned a bit deeper as they find a sort of video blog expounding on the band's very um, complex worldview. It's all done through uh, speech-to-text, 
and no less creepy for it. I'll leave you with some bits from that. Nelson Remire the Male Witch was also a witch powwow drag now in Hex County back from the dead who some have seen lately with a strange large dog in the woods. Nellie has come from the dead back recently, back into returning to Hex York County. She has traveled the reincarnation route back to this old corporation and for the coming perfect paranormal storm. Jacob Remy Jacob And she was supposed to be a witch. A witch. I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to share episodes with friends or uh, even better, to leave a review wherever you listen. You don't actually have to write anything. Even those star ratings help us a lot. So I'll be uh, looking and hoping for one of those. As I mentioned at the top of the show, these episodes keep coming out because of the support of our Patreon subscribers. When you donate, you're contributing towards the more than 100 hours of work I end up putting into each show. And uh, pledge commitments begin at $1 and can be edited at any time. Those subscribing at the $4 level or higher now receive a short extra episode in the marvelous and rare format. Uh, That is a collection of uh, strange historical anecdotes pulled from old books here, all dramatized with uh, sound effects and music, of course. We also have the Bonencycle Candle featuring the skeletal St. Nosburga, as well as two different mystery kits, each one with unique hand-packed offerings. And we still offer my Krampus book and the show's soundscapes you hear in the background, as well as scripts from the shows. I'd like to welcome those generous souls who pledged their support recently. Thank yous to Jason Kay, Jim Swartout, Lisbeth Poyer, Cynthia Barton, and Joyce Hager. Bone and Sickle is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening.